All right, well, good morning and welcome again. It's good to see you all today. Uh, unfortunately, the movie series is over. Uh, you're gonna have to wait another year before we get to get back to movies. But before you start heading for the doors, before you leave, uh, I do wanna say we have an exciting series uh, that we're jumping into this morning. We are actually uh, coming back to our five-year series, The Story of God and His People. We started this series all the way back in 2017. And our plan for this series was to take a few months every year to journey through the Old Testament narrative, the story of Israel and their relationship with God. And this year we are starting point f- part four, and we're going to be looking at the prophets, or the prophetic books of the New Testament. And you know, we have a lot to cover today. We're going to be doing a lot of kind of background information, historical stuff, kind of doing an introduction to the prophetic books. But before we do any of that, before we even start to talk about the prophets, I wanted to actually begin this message with the end of the message. I wanted to start this morning by kind of giving the exhortation that I thought I was going to give to close the sermon. And the reason I want to do that is because these prophetic books are so challenging, so in your face, that I think having the right posture the right attitude, the right heart, is is the first thing that we need to do. We need to have a posture of hearing and listening, because this can be a lot harder than it sounds. Uh, The idea, the topic of listening, has been kind of a a big one in our household for the past couple weeks. Uh, Our kids recently started school, and, you know, this can obviously be challenging anytime, But our son Grayson, who's starting first grade, is having kind of a a tougher time than usual. Uh, He's having a difficult time getting back into school. And this might sound kind of weird, but the hardest thing for him, the thing that he's struggling with the most, is kind of dealing with the kids who don't want to listen. The kids who are having a hard time behaving. And, you know, he's kind of a goody two-shoes. He's a little bit like his dad. And so it just stresses him out, you know, when other kids get in trouble and when they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And so we'll talk about this. And Gray basically kind of loosely categorizes kids into three categories. So you have the chatty kids. And the chatty kids, I mean, you can imagine, right? They just like to talk. They're first graders. They want to talk and talk and talk. And so it's hard for them just to be quiet and listen to a teacher. So Greg gets stressed out because there's a bunch of chatty kids in his class. You also have the wiggly kids. And you know the wiggly kids, they're they're just the ones that want to move around, they want to run, 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 go, go, go. And so they get into class and it's hard for them to sit still and listen. And then you have like the difficult kids. And these are the kids who just really don't want to follow directions, don't want to do what they're told, and they can be kind of the hardest uh, to deal with. Now, I was thinking about these categories uh, in relation to the prophets. Because what we'll see in this series is that the prophets have this essential, timeless message. A message that transcends culture, that goes beyond just the Old Testament. And it's a message that, as I said, it's challenging. It's in your face. They don't pull any punches in bringing up issues of sin in our lives and our faith. And so the most important thing to do 
is to really sit and listen, to really hear what the prophets have to say. But as basic as that sounds, uh, we know that this, this can be hard because some of us are a little bit like the chatty kids. We have a lot of our own ideas about what's right and wrong, how we should live. It's easy for us, easier for us to give instruction than to receive it. Some of us are a little wiggly. We're so busy, we're going and going and going that it can be hard to really stop. Look at our lives, evaluate, and hear what God has to say. And no judgment, but let's be honest, some of us are a little difficult. It's hard to listen. We don't want to receive instruction. We don't want someone telling us how to live. And at the core of these books, at the core of the prophetic message, is this question. Will we listen? Will we hear and respond to the word of the Lord? Will we listen to hard words and hard truths? Will we listen when God says, this is what I care about? This is what's important to me. Will we listen when God says, this is the best way to live. This is the way to blessing. This is the way that leads to destruction. Will we listen when God says, this is what matters? That can be hard. And so before we jump in this morning, I thought it would be appropriate for us to just start off with a time of prayer. To come before God and ask him to help us with this simple but difficult task. So let's just take a moment. I just want to be clear, by the way, the message isn't over yet. We still have a lot more to do. Don't get too excited. Like, whoa, a six-minute message. We're going to pray, and then we're going to start the message. Uh, but why don't you bow with me? Let's come before God and ask him for his help. God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you pierce through all of the resistance, all of the reasons why we don't always listen? Why we can hear your truth, we can hear a sermon, we can hear your word, and it can just go in one ear and out the other. God, we want to sit humbly before you and allow you to speak. So God, would you fill each and every one of us with your spirit? Would you fill this place with your spirit? so that we could be transformed over these next few months. So God, help us. Be with us. Move in this space. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's talk about the prophets. There are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament. There are the major prophets, and that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you have 12 Minor prophets, guys like Hosea, Micah, Amos, Joel, Jonah. If you're counting in your head, and that's only 16, Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations. So don't worry, there actually are 17. And you know, I think if we're being totally honest, it's possible that the most significant contribution that the prophets have made to the life of the modern church is giving us really cool and creative baby names 
for our little boys. Micah, Jonah, Joel. My middle name is Joel. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes we need some creative ideas, and a lot of us like to go to the, the prophets. But jokes aside, I think most of us, if we're honest, aren't super familiar with these books. They're challenging. They're confusing. At times it feels like maybe they're not the most relevant, and so we can just avoid them altogether. And so we need to begin this series with a simple question. What are these books about? What is the heart of the prophetic message? What is a prophet? What were they trying to accomplish in their ministry, in their writing? And to understand that question, to answer that question, we need to kind of go back a little bit. We need a little refresher on the Old Testament story so far, the past three years of this series. And to do that, I want to bring us back to a word that's really kind of guided this series so far. This is a word that is really at the heart of what the Old Testament is all about, and really what the, all of Scripture is all about. And that word is covenant. At the core of the Old Testament story is this covenant between God and his people. And a covenant is, is basically an agreement, a, a binding contract that sets the terms of the relationship between two parties. So for example, uh, when Alyssa and I got married, we entered into the covenant of marriage. We agreed to love each other, to be faithful to one another. I actually have a, about a 20-year-old covenant with my best friend Josh that if he ever starts smoking again, I have to punch him in the face as hard as I can. I'm not joking. This is an actual covenant, an actual agreement we have. I hope I never have to do it, but I will if I have to. And God's relationship with his people is defined by a covenant, a covenant that developed over time through God's relationship with men like Abraham, Moses, and David. And in these covenants, God makes all of these amazing promises to Israel. Promises to bless them and be with them. To give them a land and make them a great nation. To make them a light to the other nations. And so Israel's identity is bound up in this covenant. The covenant kind of tells them who they are as God's people. Now, there's also the other side of the covenant. There are stipulations for Israel as well. On one hand, you have the promises that God makes to them, but there are also promises that Israel has made to God to be faithful, to worship him alone, to pursue obedience and righteousness. And so essentially, the covenant is, is both sides agreeing. I will be faithful to you. I'm going to keep my promises that I've made to you. Now, what we see throughout the biblical story is that this covenant really kind of ends up being pretty one-sided. God keeps up his end. He does what he says he'll do. He continually blesses Israel. He provides for them. He loves them. He brings them on this journey to give them all the things he said he would. But instead of responding in obedience, Israel just keeps on sinning over and over and over again. They always turn away from him, and every time they do, things go bad. 
And so you can kind of think about the whole Old Testament story as one big up and down roller coaster. Just this up and down of God's grace and provision, and then Israel sinning. And this is what I would call the sin-grace cycle. So the people sin, they turn away from God, they turn away from the pathway of his blessing, and things go bad, things get hard, Israel ends up in need of rescue. And then, even though God is under no obligation to do so, he responds in grace. Over and over and over again, he rescues and redeems. And this is kind of what we've seen in our series uh, so far, the past three years. We saw in Exodus how God powerfully and graciously rescues Israel from Egypt. He takes them out of slavery, provides for them in the wilderness, shows them how to live, gives them the law. But almost immediately, they turn away from him. They grumble and complain. They worship a golden calf. They cower in fear at the idea of going into the land of Canaan. And so they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years. God responds in grace. He delivers them into the promised land. He empowers them to take this land of abundance, this land of milk and honey. Everything is great. But then, once again, pretty much right away, before they can really even get settled, the people start worshiping pagan gods, turning away from God, turning away from the law, and choosing just really wicked, sinful lives. And so once again, Israel falls into chaos. But God continues to show grace even after that, and he raises up a king for them, a man after his own heart, in David. And he raises up Israel to be this great nation, this like legitimate national power. They've got a huge army, a bunch of land. He has Solomon build a temple so that he can make his dwelling, his presence known in a permanent way. And this is kind of where we left off in our story at the end of last year, or last year's series. This high point in Israel's history. You think about all the promises that God has fulfilled, all the ways that even though Israel's been sinning the whole time, God has fulfilled the covenant. Land, blessing, presence, nation. It's all coming together. If ever Israel was going to get their act together and choose faithfulness, this would be the moment. This is Israel's chance to respond to God's grace with faithfulness, with obedience, with gratitude. And so can you guess what they did? No surprise, they chose sin. And we're not going to go into all the details of this era right now, but it is a period of decline, spiritual and national downturn. Uh, kings aligned with foreign wives and sinful practices, Infighting led the, the nation to be split into two different countries. Uh, people uh, adopted foreign gods and pagan practices, even things as despicable as child sacrifice. And all the while, we see the nation getting weaker and weaker. They eventually become the doormat of the ancient Near East, basically the Los Angeles Clippers of the ancient world. Yeah, yeah, I said it. <laughs> Never on top, 
usually at the bottom. And so whichever empire was in power, whether it was the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Egyptians, whoever it was, they just took turns controlling Israel's people and their land. And this all goes really bad in this defining moment of Israel's history, 586 B.C. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar invades Israel, destroys Jerusalem, and took most of the Israelites into exile, takes them away from their homes to be captives in Babylon. And we see this happen in 2 Kings 25 in some detail. 2 Kings 25, verse 8, says, On the seventh month, day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. So this is rock bottom. This is the worst moment in Israel's history to this point. It seemed as if God's promises were just unraveling before their eyes. Everything he had done for them, everything they had gained, land, presence, nation, it's all gone. And so Israel is left with these really deep, soul-crushing questions. Why is this happening? Where is God? Has he forsaken us? Or have his promises just failed? And this is the era that the prophets are speaking into. It's during this period that the prophets' ministry begins. Uh, the earliest prophets are writing uh, during the period of decline, before the destruction of Jerusalem, before the exile. Uh, many of the prophets actually write during the exile, as people are struggling to live in this foreign land. Some of the prophets also write after the exile, as Israel is trying to pick up the broken pieces of their nation. And so the prophets' ministry actually spans hundreds of years throughout this entire period of decline and destruction and exile. But the common thread across all this time, across different authors, is that the prophets want Israel to understand clearly why this is happening and what they can do about it. See, a prophet's job, the role of the prophet, is simply speaking God's truth, speaking for God, to his people. I think a lot of times we think about prophecy as, you know, predicting the future or talking about end times stuff. And some of the prophets do this. But the basic role of prophet is about delivering hard truth to stubborn people in difficult times. To deliver a message, to deliver words of God that aren't necessarily easy or convenient, aren't conventional. 
So what is the heart of the prophetic message? What is the truth that God wants to deliver to Israel? What is it that we're going to study over the next several weeks? To put it simply, the prophets are calling on Israel to remember the covenant, to repent from sin and turn back from God. The prophets don't pull any punches in calling out Israel for their sin and unfaithfulness, for all the ways that they've been unfaithful to their promises to God. And they want Israel to see that their situation, that what's going on in their lives, it's not God's fault. It's not that God has failed. It's not that God doesn't love them anymore. It's not that God doesn't want to bless them. It's not that God is gone. It's that they have walked away from their relationship with God. They have turned their backs on the blessing and provision that he's waiting to give them. And we see in Jeremiah 3 a a great example of this. And this is a very common type of passage that we see in the prophets. This is typical of the message. In Jeremiah 3.19, this is the prophet speaking for God. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. This is probably the most important theme that we see in the prophets. This calling for Israel to repent and return to God. And what we see right from the beginning is that there is a measure of condemnation But more than that, there is a desire from God, a desire for relationship, a desire for them to come back to him. And so in the first half of this series, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about some of these issues, some of the broken promises of Israel, the ways that they have broken the covenant. And one of the the really big questions that we have to answer as we approach these pretty challenging passages is, what does this mean for us today? Are these words from the prophets to the nation of Israel, are they for us? Are they for us to take to heart? And the answer is yes, but there's nuance to how we approach these passages. We have to be careful about how we understand these words. Because right off the bat, we have to understand that we don't live under the old covenant. Our covenant isn't conditioned on our obedience. It's conditioned on Christ's obedience. Because of Jesus, we don't face judgment or condemnation. God isn't going to love us less if we sin, he's not going to love us more if we obey. God isn't going to bring punishment upon us if we don't do the right thing. 
But these passages still matter for us. They're still essential for us as God's people. And there are two big reasons why. First, and I think most importantly, is because these passages, these books, they reveal to us the very heart of God. They reveal who God is. They reveal what he cares about. The covenant violations that the prophets talk about, they're not small little ticky-tack things. But they cut to the core of what it means to love God, to be his people. And so when the prophets say that God hates idolatry or hates injustice, we can either say, well, I don't really have to worry about that. I don't really have to deal with those things. I'm saved by grace, so I don't have to worry about the stuff that's commanded in the Old Testament. Or we can say, man, this is really important to God. This clearly shows us what he cares about. Shows us what it means to love him, to follow him, to be somebody who reflects his character. And so for me to be someone who follows God and acknowledges him as my king, I want to make sure my life is aligned with his heart in these areas. These passages also matter because they remind us of the pathway to blessing. They remind us that oftentimes the solution to life's biggest problems, to dealing with suffering and struggle and all the hardship in our lives, it's not dealing with all the stuff around us, but instead it's dealing with our own hearts. It's dealing with our stuff. It's dealing with our sin. See, when we look at this era it's easy to understand how Israel would think that it's all about what's going on in the world around them. Like, if only God would deal with Babylon, with these mean soldiers who keep picking on us. If only God would take care of the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Persians. If only God would bring up some good leaders who could fix all of our problems. But the prophetic message is, it's not all those guys. It's your choices. It's your commitment. It's your sin. And this doesn't mean that all of life's problems are our fault. It doesn't mean that obedience makes everything better. But it's a reminder of this unchanging principle that we've seen in every part of this series so far, that sin prevents blessing. That is a fact. That when we turn away from the life God has for us, from his heart for our lives, from his heart for us as his people, life is just going to be harder. But when we turn in repentance to who he calls us to be, we experience the blessing of his relationship, of his promises, of his peace and joy and hope. And so as we consider the stakes of this book, to know and live the heart of God and to experience the blessing he has promised us, we want to come back to this key question. Will I listen? 
Will I hear these words? Will I take them to heart? Will I respond the best way I can? Will I do the hard work of being a good listener, not being the chatty kid or the wiggly kid or the difficult kid, but instead coming every week to sit before the king and allow him to speak? And so this morning, as we close our time, we want to consider this invitation to repentance, to really be open to what God might say to us. But at the same time, we also want to look ahead. Because while the prophetic books do begin with this call to repentance, the goal isn't to feel bad or feel guilty or just to sit and stay in our brokenness. We don't want this to be the most depressing series ever, I promise. Because really, the purpose of repentance, the purpose of the prophetic writing, is to bring us to a place of hope in God's promise. It's to reconnect us to God's redemptive story, to this reality that in our brokenness, in our worst rock-bottom moments, God is still there, and God is still moving and working to rebuild what's broken. And we're going to talk about that a lot in the second half of this series, about these promises of God that we can hold on to. But we always want to keep that truth before us. Even as we wrestle with the reality of sin, we want to live in light of God's grace. And so this morning, uh, as we go into a time of worship, we're going to uh, sing a new song. And this is going to be kind of our, our theme song for the series. We try to have a song uh, every time we do this series that kind of captures the heart uh, of God's word. And this song is called Glorious Ruins. And it's a reminder that God is about, at his core, at the very heart of who he is, he is about bringing ruins back to life. He is about rebuilding what's broken. And he wants us to do that in each and every one of our lives. Wherever there is brokenness, wherever there is sin, wherever there is defeat, wherever there is struggle, wherever there is failure, wherever there is slavery, God wants to rebuild and restore. And so we want this morning and in the weeks to come to recognize that there is so much beauty and there can be so much joy in acknowledging brokenness because we know, because we can be sure that God is doing and will always do his glorious work of restoring. Let's pray. God, we come before you in anticipation of what you will do of how you will speak, of how you will challenge us, call us to new things, but also of how you will bless us, how you will give us a new sense of your hope. And so God, we come before you now acknowledging our brokenness with this attitude of, God, would you search me would you speak to me? 
would you help me to see these areas of sin? Because what I want more than anything else is to have you restore those places in my life. And so God, give us the courage this morning and in the weeks to come to bring those to you. All of it. So that you can make it new. God, would you fill this place now? We love you so much and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.